that is um, part and parcel of the way China is governed. A very powerful party state that now has a clearly made up its mind that it wants to bring these companies to heel and that if it breaks some China, quote unquote, in the process, tough. In October 2020, Chinese tech billionaire and founder of Alibaba, Jack Ma, delivered a speech criticizing the Chinese government's approach to digital financial regulation in the days before the $35 billion initial public offering of Alibaba's financial affiliate, Ant Group. Blocked by Chinese regulators shortly after Ma's speech, Ant's IPO never happened. And Ma mysteriously disappeared from public life for months thereafter. The blocking of Ant Group's IPO was the start of a concerted campaign by Chinese regulators to crack down on China's biggest players in tech, from giants in digital commerce to ride-sharing. How has this crackdown taken shape? What was its impetus? And what does the crackdown mean for the future of China's economy and its technological innovation? To help us answer these questions, today on the podcast, we're joined by Dr. Scott Kennedy. Scott Kennedy is a senior advisor and trustee chair in Chinese business and economics at the Center for Strategic and International Studies. A leading authority on Chinese economic policy, Kennedy has been traveling to China for over 30 years. His specific areas of expertise include industrial policy, technology innovation, business, lobbying, U.S.-China commercial relations, and global governance. We hope you enjoyed this episode of the Hopkins Podcast on Foreign Affairs. All right. Well, Dr. Kennedy, thank you so much for joining us today on the Hopkins Podcast on Foreign Affairs. I'm happy to be here uh, with you. Uh, Feel free to call me Scott. And... uh... Uh, look forward to the conversation. Will do. Sounds good. So to get us started, Scott, China has accelerated its rigorous rel- regulatory campaign against its domestic big tech players since around October 2020. Before we kind of dive into the campaign and its implications, we're wondering if you could give our listeners an overview of kind of what we mean by big tech and then who the big tech companies in China are, given that most listeners probably won't be as familiar with those companies as is Google or Facebook. Sure, sure. Um, well, this isn't your your grandma's China any longer, or, or Mao's China. Um, you have um, obviously still a lot of folks who live in the countryside who are farmers. One of every ten or eleven people on the planet is a Chinese farmer. Uh, still, uh, that's down from where it used to be. But uh, China has a a monster, huge economy, quite diverse. Um, and uh, a lot of, of companies that are in uh, traditional technology spaces, uh, uh, automobiles, other kinds of manufacturing, uh, as well as advanced tech all the way to the cutting edge in, in biotech, in information communications technologies, telecom, people have probably heard of Huawei, uh, probably not their favorite company, uh, but China is also uh, internet uh, service providers um, that uh, folks that do business over the internet, like Alibaba, which um, is China's version of Amazon, but also has uh, their own uh, payments system and uh, provides a bunch of cl- cloud services and uh, is a big venture capitalist uh, themselves. There's a huge ecosystem of, of companies. Tencent, a company uh, that has the uh, uh, Swiss Army Knife app WeChat that has uh, everything from uh, you know 
chat with your friends and groups to media to making plane train reservations to ordering up your car uh the financing systems behind that so that you know most chinese think those of us who pull plastic out of our pocket uh to pay for something are antiquated uh, and so uh and and you know i would say significant portion of 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 large chinese firms are still state-owned enterprises uh, uh but a significant number of the probably the companies we're most familiar with that maybe listeners have heard of are probably private chinese companies and i do understand why people think there may not be a distinction between state-owned and private anymore uh, because of the long reach of of uh, the chinese communist party but i think actually there's still some real differences in how they operate and, and what they do uh, despite those those genuine constraints so it's a it's a diverse group of of corporate institutions industry uh, which makes following china a ton of fun and scott i'm wondering if you could tell us who jack ma is oh my gosh um i jack ma is um one of the founders of of alibaba uh and uh uh he went to uh study english in the united states and work uh in in seattle um in the early 90s uh then uh went home helped start this uh a, a, a company which became alibaba and uh originally was about a trading platform uh, and sources of information uh, and then has just evolved into this massive uh behemoth um and you know i don't think jack ma knew what he was going to create maybe most innovators don't um but um you know very very uh innovative company obviously he's extremely driven super smart uh attracts great talent uh brings different people together uh but he also and part of that is you don't know uh where the lines are drawn where you should cross and not cross and uh, a, a year ago october he was at a conference in shanghai and said what was on his mind with uh with no no filter uh about how regulation in china was uh stifling innovation and that you know most of this uh most of china's high-tech economy should be left to companies to figure out what to do and um that irked some folks, uh, not just the officials in the audience, but some folks who were watching back in Beijing, uh, which is where a lot of this gets gets started. And, you know, since then, one element of what the Chinese have been trying to do is to remind Jack Ma and every other high tech entrepreneur who's boss. Um, so just to back us up a little bit uh, to prior to when Jack Ma said those things at the conference before October 2020, before this current crackdown on big tech, um, what had China's general regulatory stance towards domestic tech giants been? And have we seen pushes by the Chinese government or the CCP to rein in big tech before? Yeah, <clears throat> it's, it goes back and forth. It's, it's a great question. And there's, there's no one simple answer for this. You know, in uh, the late 90s, and I'm sorry to back up so far uh, for, for folks, uh, as as china was really beginning to liberalize its economy in in the late 90s and allow for private entrepreneurs to have companies of any significant scale 
you know, that's like when uh, Sina, the first real internet search company in China, uh, came into being along, along with some other private companies in real estate and construction and services and travel uh, were, were founded. Uh, it's when Huawei uh, first began to significantly grow. Uh, the Communist Party's attitude was, whoa, we better figure out a way to make peace with these folks. So China's leader then, uh, Jiang Zemin, uh, cooked up this ideological phrase called the three represents and said the Communist Party doesn't just represent like the proletariat and the workers and the general interests of the people, but also represents the most quote unquote advanced forces in the economy, i.e. private entrepreneurs. They too have a place at the table inside the Communist Party, despite being what most people would call capitalists. Um, and that gave them a lot of running room. They were worried about what happened with Boris Yeltsin and Russia, that these oligarchs rose outside the power hierarchy and they put a lot of pressure on the state. And they wanted to avoid that by bringing them in. Um, so that's what they did for a while uh, as they joined the WTO um, and continued to give them a lot of space. Also, these folks are coming up with ideas and business models and things which, which um, your average bureaucrat couldn't anticipate. So they had the luck of surprising the, in the bureaucracy with ideas that no one ever thought of, like new kinds of payment systems and things that you know, the central bank didn't really understand that that was potentially you know, as large as China's standard banking system, for example. Um, then along 2005 and six comes China's drive to uh, have indigenous innovation, domestically created innovations to reduce their dependence on the rest of the world, including us. And for that, China, again, was depending somewhat on these private entrepreneurs where information communication technologies, pharma, transportation is really important. But they also then put more money back into SOEs and gave them more running room as well to be high-tech giants. Um, as Xi Jinping uh, took power in 2012, you, uh, after the global financial crisis, uh, he also came to power in the wake of Snowden. Uh, revelations, then the tensions with the United States and uh, the dangers of the world lurking. And I think all of that pushed the Chinese in the direction, you know what, these private companies, can we really trust them? Can we really trust globalization? Um, we need to be much more politically careful. And so they expanded their definition of what counts as national security. And so I think over that time, they began to be more and more suspect and concerned about these private entrepreneurs. And then lo and behold, you know, look how they're talking. Oh my God, look how much market share they have. Look how much um, influence they have. Look how much data they have. Uh, and that's, that's the preface to the, you know, policy storm that they've launched the last year. Right. And Scott, I think like, as you said, that's perfect context for, for understanding what's happening now. With that context, could you give us what happens next in the story? So Jack Ma, he goes to this conference, he says things that irks people. What happens to his company, Ant Group? And, or well, I guess I'm not sure if it's his company, but so a uh, subsidy, or I guess you could tell us the proper relationship between Ant Group and Alibaba, but what happens to Ant Group and then in November and then subsequently in April? Yeah, so I'm going to, probably get this wrong and because it's actually it's really complex and even if you follow these companies a long time you still might not really understand how they are all legally connected to each other 
um, in, in part because in order to have companies, a private company like this in China that has foreign investment, it had to do some regular, create some regular, it had to get around regulatory hula hoops, hoops that block foreign investment from internet services in China. So actually to, to do all of this stuff, uh, Jack Ma and Alibaba, they created what they call a variable interest entity that allows them to take money from foreigners into a company based in the Cayman Islands, which then uses the money to invest in their businesses. And so when you buy shares on the New York Stock Exchange of Alibaba, you're actually not buying money in a company that he controls and runs. You're, you're keeping, you're having faith that that connection actually is, that commitment is held, but it's a hands, it's an arm's length relationship that most people aren't aren't fully aware of, and then you've got questions of how much market of how many shares and controlling interest and things like that in China. But in any case, what happened after that, uh, beside the fact that Jack Ma uh, essentially disappeared from public life, except I think he's re uh, uh, become visible a couple times in January and sometime early in the spring at, at small conferences uh, to uh, get, offer some wishes and offer philanthropy. But the company itself has come under uh, significant pressure uh, in, in every aspect of its, of its business because of uh, the amount of data it has, the significance of the, the finances that it controls. And really the big, uh, I mean, there's several things that have happened to, to internet uh, companies. One is about uh, the data they have in all the businesses. So there's been an effort to decide, you know, we, we've got to break up Alibaba into smaller pieces. Um, and have control over them. So that's been been an effort that that is underway. And also other companies that they're looking to to treat the same. I think what a lot of people have also heard about is their effort uh, by the Ant Group to IPO uh, was approved, uh, essentially approved. And then they were uh, given hints that maybe they ought to rethink that, but they went ahead anyway and then had to pull it back. Uh, so they had to withdraw their, essentially withdraw their IPO um, and leave uh, a lot of folks who had put up a bunch of money for this uh, essentially empty-handed. Um, and then the stock of Alibaba, another listed Chinese companies tanked, uh, creating more losses, uh, you know, hundreds of billions, if not trillions in, in, in paper losses. And that is, um, you know, part and parcel of the way China is governed. Um, a very powerful party state that now has a cl clearly made up its mind that it wants to bring these companies to heel and that if it breaks some China, quote unquote, in the process, tough. And in fact, more the better so that folks remember who's boss, not just Jack Ma, uh, but uh, American bankers uh, and shareholders that, uh, you know, you uh, mess with the bull, you get the horns. That's what they want folks to, to, to remember. Um, but what they've been doing uh, over the past year is only partially that. We now have a much, much larger campaign of uh, and policy trajectory that goes even way beyond you think of in terms of a campaign against private high tech. And so, S Scott, I want to ask, I, I guess, a follow up in, well, 
I guess a clarification point, if you don't mind, when you said that Ancroup had to withdraw its IPO, what was the, who was the actor there? Were they forced to do that or did they do that by choice or? Uh, um, I don't know the story in absolute enough details, but you have, um, you know, regulators in, in China who are generally responsible for uh, publicly traded companies and listings uh, and for China's international economic activities. Then you have folks who are responsible for Chinese industrial policy. You have folks responsible for cyber ideology and propaganda. And then you go higher up. And precisely who it was exactly when that let them know that this was a really, really bad idea and that they had to stop. I can't say exactly for sure, but uh, this all got turned around and um, uh, with, with a very bad outcome uh, and a, a lot of confusion. And I still think that people are trying to figure out uh, not just what's, what's going on with this one company, but Chinese IPOs in general and with Chinese companies listed abroad. The U.S. and China have been had this arm wrestling match over regulatory oversight uh, for listed companies in the United States since 2002, when uh, the U.S. passed regulatory reform. Uh, we have uh, required any company that's listed on uh, U.S.-based stock exchanges to be able to be open to uh, our regulators being able to not only to know, see their financial books, but understand those of their accountants and their auditors. And China doesn't want us to have that visibility into um, that far back up the chain. They're worried that um, if, the, if the US SEC or the Public Company Accounting Oversight Board ask for some document, that there might be some national security secret there that they don't think we should see. And so China has asserted their sovereignty over their own companies, and the U.S. has asserted sovereignty over how it regulates its stock markets, and they haven't been able to come to agreement, um, which is another uh, thorn in the relationship, pushing on this, leading folks to think, well, really, we've seen the last listed, last company list uh, in the United States from China, and that maybe they all will soon get up and go home. Uh, and relist in Hong Kong or Shanghai or Beijing's new uh, board. And um, this is part of some, you know, larger financial decoupling that we will eventually um, all uh, watch. So we've been discussing mostly um, Ant Group and uh, Alibaba in this conversation, but a number of other influential big tech companies in China have been targeted by regulators, such as Tencent and Didi. Um, and so can you just describe a little bit what happened in those cases, how they were, how they differed or were similar to um, the, uh, the situation that happened with Ant Group? Well, I think with uh, Didi, that's primarily a listing problem where they got uh, caught up, but they also have a bunch of data. And I think the Chinese government is really worried that a private company has all of this data about uh, people's travel transportation and also can look into their cell phone and see other things uh, and then use all that and sell it and monetize it and etc so they're they're super concerned uh, about that as well also been uh, highly anxious 
about gaming companies and the fact that it seems to uh, lead to a lot of spending on gaming and a lot of time used gaming, keeping folks from doing what they should be doing. China already had regulations about how much time folks could spend playing games. Uh, uh, I think it was supposed to be something like three hours a week or something. And then they said, okay, we're going to cut it to an hour a week and it has to only be on the weekend. Um, and so, you know, my expect that that makes life in China a lot less fun. I don't like to play video games a lot, but I imagine there's a large percentage of people that do. Um, and so uh, that's, that's been uh, restricted. So I, I think what it's going to mean is going to be a lot of 40, 45 year old folks opening new accounts for their kids to play on their accounts. That's going to be the way it, uh, it'll, it'll get around that. Uh, with uh, tutoring services, huge uh, business in China, tutoring. People go to school, but they also go to cram schools a lot. There's a, it's a monster business. Uh, if folks want to get into the right high school or get into the right college, you just everybody does this. But they've essentially banned that business um, within China and then also the international component of it. So a high-tech company in China that, that a lot of people may not have heard of who are listening, but in China, they all know of this company called VIP Kids, which pairs up uh, Chinese kids with uh, English language teachers around the world, a lot in the United States, several hundred thousand. Uh, and so you get online. And, um, and so people are worried, uh, Chinese officials were worried that, um, you know, these, these teachers were making a lot of money uh, and also spreading Western democracy and culture, uh, including the minds of these, these young Chinese people, which I think is, uh, yeah, not what's happening. Um, uh, when a teacher is trying to teach an eight-year-old, you know, basically sentence structures and vocab and stuff like that. That's, that's not what's going on. But I guess they're worried. Of course, in the same time, the U.S. is also originally really worried that VIP kids was leading to all of these teachers' data going to the Chinese. So uh, both sides have a, a lot of antsiness about that. Uh, we've seen a crackdown in uh, internet companies that, uh, that offer you know, apartment rental services like, like, uh, you know, they're Chinese versions of Airbnb. Um, and so across the board of China's internet economy, there's been a crackdown. I think it's, it's not touched most of China's sort of traditional sort of manufacturing high tech. It's focused really heavily on uh, these uh, internet companies and all the different ways and types of services they provide. Most of it, again, are, are private um, and have content or one or sort of the another that makes a variety of different regulators in China uh, antsy. And once Xi Jinping said go, they've gone and acted quite tough. Scott, I'm interested in, in the United States, we've also seen a, a very recent push towards regulating American big tech. And this is kind of across the political aisle, not, not in a consensus sense, but both liberals and conservatives have sought to kind of regulate US big tech. I'm wondering, do you think that the impetus for these movements in both the United States and China is basically the same of kind of a concern about the growing power of big tech and the kind of inability of government to rein that in. I, I, there's there's definitely uh, some similarities, uh, but it's not 100% the same. Um, yes, uh, these companies have massive amounts of data and power. Uh, and are able to 
get us hooked on their apps and staring at our phones too long and um, have access to uh, additional sources of data that we don't know when we click OK, uh, that, they, that they can use in a whole variety of different ways. And there are just a few of them in different product categories. So they have uh, a lot of, of market power that they could potentially abuse. I, th um, I think in the United States, that has been combined with our democratic process and the fragmentation of the media and concerns that um, there's a lot of fake news uh, and, uh, the, uh, and that Facebook and others are either pulling us uh, into left a direction and being a voice for uh, uh, liberals or in the other direction and a voice for uh, uh, white nationalists or populist nationalists who are anti-democratic, uh, or all of, or both. In in China, it's uh, there's really there's only one party line, and th there's not the level of diversity of political debate, and so there, I think the questions about data are really more about the ways they are genuinely monetized, and the additional information that companies may learn about people as opposed to that uh, splitting of public opinion into many different points of view and a challenge to communist party orthodoxy. And uh, so I think that's different. I, the other is um, I, the, the US doesn't have lots of state-owned companies. Um, we've got a very diverse uh, group of folks we have, uh, who uh, run industry, who are on all sides of the political aisle. Uh, in, in China, uh, it's a different political system. So the rise of, of, of large private companies and, and thousands of billionaires has a different kind of effect on, on China's uh, political landscape, potentially. These are folks who don't, in reality, have um, a lot of political power, you know, through lobbying or through elections or, you know, trying to really change the narrative in the media or things like that, but uh, they matter quite a bit. So I think what we saw is a shift from, so, you know, the fear that they had because of what happened with Yeltsin and the rise of oligarchs to more Putin's response. Well, geez, what we're going to do is bring all these folks to heel under ourselves, And that's, so Xi Jinping has really followed Putin's lead in that. Um, we are still debating almost endlessly what we ought to do about this. And so we're seeing the Chinese actually race ahead with a certain kind of answer while we're still uh, debating the fine uh, niceties of, you know, what the algorithm should be in terms of what we see when we go onto Facebook. And uh, in that regard, we, you could criticize the fact that we're slow, but we're also recognizing that we've got freedom of the press. We've got a whole variety of different interests and principles to try and, and weigh. So our slowness, our gridlock in some ways is, uh, has some advantages, even though, boy, it looks way, it looks messy here uh, for sure. And just to look at the future um, of 
big tech in China. Should we expect China's crackdown on big tech to continue moving forward um, in the next several years? And what may be the end goal of Chinese regulators and party leaders? And secondly, what is this? Ten- what is the tendency towards big tech big tech crackdowns mean for China's growth as a t- technological superpower? That's a great question. Both of, both of those questions are really good, Indy. I think um, what we saw a year ago and still continuing as a focus on these high-tech internet companies is expanded and now is really about how to uh, reduce certain kinds of sources of inequality, how to uh, deal with China's uh, population demography problems, um, how to inculcate folks with the quote unquote right socialist values. Um, There's some similarities to sort of a progressive or a leftist turn, but a lot of this isn't very progressive at all. Uh, There's a significant crackdown on the LGBT community in China on people who emphasize gender equality. Um, so this is, this is not this, what you would think of as an American progressive movement or what you would see in, in Europe in uh, uh, democratic socialist countries. Uh, but it is, and it's also not at the same time, it's not cultural revolution 2.0. Uh, so exactly what its boundaries are are still unclear, but it's very large. And that broader political trajectory in China is going to affect uh, businesses, and and they it's, it's a new day for everybody, not just not just these high tech companies. Um, in terms of the effect on growth in China, I th- I think the debate is going to turn on whether this restructuring of regula- regulation ends up creating more healthy competition with a wider number of actors. Uh, with less dominance from a small number of companies and generates more entrepreneurship uh, that solves a variety of China's social ills. That's one potential outcome. Another is they're doing this in such a high-handed top-down way with such an ideological sledgehammer that it's actually going to stifle innovation and lead to folks who are the best and brightest in China to figure, you know what, I'm gonna stay here, but I'm not gonna put forward that new idea because it's risky. Or, you know what, I'm gonna stay at SICE. When I'm done at SICE, I'm gonna stay in the US. Um, and that's, that's the question of, what, of, of where the Delta is. I am a little, I mean, we probably like in many things in China, we'll get a little bit of both. I would lean towards expecting the latter consequences, slowdown in innovation, a, a, a faster slowdown in growth to be the more dominant result of, of all of this. There may be some improvements in certain places. Uh, these companies in some places do have too much data and they're genuine, reasonable antitrust concerns. But the way the Chinese go about this uh, irks a lot of folks in China. We have to remember since uh, the late 80s or early 90s, China told everyone, you need to be professionals. You need to take those professions seriously. You need to be as schooled up as possible. You need to explore and innovate. You need to have freedom over your personal lives, 
what you do in China, your travel, and we're going to be a modern society, and you will be a part of that. And now they're coming back and telling all of this, this, these people, this large professional classes, you need to be redder, and red is more important than being expert. And your professional knowledge is important, but only to the extent that you're politically loyal. Otherwise, you're a danger to us. And that shift in message rubs, doesn't only rub people the wrong way, but it devalues them as, as individuals and contributors to society. And they th thought the deal that they had has been taken away. That social contract that they had has now been, it wasn't, you know, we'll just, you know, to get rich is glorious. And as long as we get richer, will accept authoritarianism, it was, you're going to create a society in which we feel valued and uh, well-treated and respected, even if we don't have the vote. Uh, now people wonder, is that deal broken? And if that deal is broken um, and people feel that way, that means not only slower growth for China, that means possible political instability in China. And so my, my concern isn't just, is China going to go slower? It's also, is it going to be politically more fragile as a result of this huge shift? Um, that has implications, not just for folks in China, not just for business people, not just for Wall Street, but for national security planners who have to consider what a more uh, anxious, rigid, nationalist uh, China will be like on the global stage. Well, on that note, Scott, it has been truly a, a pleasure to talk to you this afternoon. Um, it's been a really fascinating conversation. So we're, it's been great to talk to you. Thanks for being here. Zach and Andy, it's been my pleasure. And uh, thank you for having me. Thank you very much for listening to this episode of the Hopkins podcast on foreign affairs. We hope you enjoyed it. We would like to say thank you to the International Studies Program at Johns Hopkins University and the SNF Agora Institute at Johns Hopkins University for making this episode possible. Remember to follow us on social media at Hopkins POFA on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook for the latest and greatest of Hopkins POFA content. Hit follow on Spotify, subscribe on iTunes, and leave a rating. We'll see you next time.